This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Diversity at Facebook is a huge issue. I asked product designer Nicholas Inzuki how having a diverse workforce affects what Facebook creates. When you're designing for 2 billion people, there's going to be a huge amount of diversity in that population. And having empathy as a designer for those specific needs is more important than ever. Having a diverse workforce sort of embeds for that empathy within our team, um, which is invaluable for having the right instincts um, to make the right decisions as the project proceeds. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I wanted to talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Glitch is a friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. I'm talking cutting-edge VR experiences, smart bots, useful tools to solve problems at work, apps that help advance important causes, I mean, you name it. People have built over a million projects on Glitch for you to discover, and new ones are popping up every single day. Get started on making something awesome today at Glitch.com. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and the design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. Now, MailChimp may have started out just doing mail, like it's in the name MailChimp, but you can use it now for Facebook ads, for Instagram ads, for powerful automations. I mean, if you're running any kind of a holiday campaign, whether it's emails or discounts or what have you, you really should be using MailChimp. I mean, you can really think of it as more like a marketing powerhouse for what you do. Sign up for a free account today and give it a try. MailChimp, send better email. Now for this week's interview. We're talking to Bobby C. Martin Jr., co-founder and founding partner of the Original Champions of Design in New York City. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Okay, well, my name is Bobby Martin, and I am the co-founder of OCD, the Original Champions of Design. We are a branding and design agency. We're based in New York City. We focus on uh, building identity systems. Uh, that's what we love. That's what we love to do. That's why we started our company. I worked at a variety of different companies over the course of my career. And then after I had done, kind of exhausted those different places, learned as much as I could at those different places, then we decided that it was time to start our own company so that we could do exactly what we wanted to do. And, and that's when we started OCD, which was in 2010. Nice. What's a typical day like for you at OCD? The days vary um, over the course of a week, but there's eight of us in the office and we go in, we, we have uh, 
right now the the office is set up where we have this this great little storefront office right on the right in the in the in the city in the East Village. So we we get to see people walking back and forth on the on the street on the avenue, and we <laughs> for me right now there's a lot of uh, going back and forth on email. So I'm I'm dealing with a lot of that as a as a business owner and as a manager, uh, working a lot with clients and, and managing projects and uh, setting up and, and just setting up opportunities and things like that. But but the day is pretty hectic depending on what we're up to. So we start off, everybody's coming in and, and it's it's really nice when people are coming in because they um, we, we start off at typically between nine and 10 Every morning, the gang comes in. They they go and get coffee, and or everybody's working in different ways, and they kind of have their different ways of working and their, their different uh, behaviors, I guess, their their different habits. Mm-hmm. But we'll set up meetings for, to kind of go over different projects and brainstorm and and or or critique uh, work. I typically lead projects that I have that come to me. Um, so different projects will come to me or through me um, or uh, my design partner, Jennifer will have projects that come to or through her. So she's leading those part, those projects and I'm leading certain projects. And then if, if I'm leading a project, then she will come in and kind of support and work as a, as a sounding board or kind of a, a support on that project. And if she's leading a project, I work in a kind of supporting manner in that way. And then I have a handful of designers, one or two or three designers, depending on the scale of the project, working with me on, on those projects. And we have a brand strategist that's also working on those. And, and so we will, we'll meet depending on the projects, we'll meet to go through the status of those projects and brainstorm and kind of push the project's a little bit further. We are really committed on, uh, committed to figuring out how we could deliver the best and most appropriate ideas and and push those ideas to being as appropriate and and excellent as, as they could possibly be for whatever the, the project is. The way that we work, I, I think the office is is a really fun place to be, but it can also be fairly disciplined where a lot of people, once we have those meetings, but then we, we just get back to it and we start working. So we, we kind of crank through stuff. Everybody's in front of their computers or at a table comping, comping up stuff or just, just working. So we, we tend to have these meetings because we need to sit together and talk about what's going on to, to figure out the status of things. But after that, we kind of roll up our sleeves and just get going. Um, sometimes we just, we'll take a break for lunch go out and get lunch and come back. And then we just kind of keep cranking through it. And we tend to work not into the night, but we, we work, I would say later than average. So I tend to leave probably if I come in at nine, I'm leaving around eight. Uh, some of the team members leave a little later than I. I try not to work over the weekends, and and we don't encourage that for the team. But uh, but I was in yesterday to to set up some stuff for a new employee, and when I came in, 
somebody was in there working. So <laughs> it's just we we don't tell people that they should be working on the weekend, or we don't we don't encourage working on the weekend, working late into the night. But if that's something that uh, designers want to do, just because they want to push things further, um, they're totally it's it's totally up to them, and that's really the the kind of bar that they're they're setting for themselves and uh and we try to make it a comfortable environment so that they feel like they are are able to do that without feeling pressured to that's kind of how we work and every week we also have a a weekly status meeting that we we try to make pretty fun because status meetings can really be boring and and monotonous and and just feel like they're a waste of time so each week we have a status meeting and each designer is responsible for a different week. So they have to come in and present something that's creative and, and, and kind of like a, uh, a team building exercise each time. So, um, so that gets to be pretty fun and something for us all to look forward to and participate in. It's a fairly close, close knit environment, which you kind of need for a creative place. Yeah. I was going to say it does sound very like close knit and, and discipline. It's, it's good that it sounds like you can get everyone kind of on the same track when it comes to projects and things. Everyone's kind of working in one direction, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, I think with anything you have, there's times when you have questions, there's times when things can feel like they're not going in the right direction. But then we try to nip that in the bud pretty quickly so that we're not losing time or being inefficient. And and so because of that, we we meet as often as we need to. Um, and because we're in an office that's not so big, we can we can see what's going on, but we try not to loom. So we can see what's going on enough to know um, if things are going off track too soon. And that's also why we have these status meetings every week, because even if we're, we're in a small office, it's only eight of us. But it's crazy how quickly you, you don't you wouldn't realize how even with the office of eight people don't know what each other are working on. Mm-hmm. And so having these weekly status meetings where people are sharing what they're working on is so helpful. And it also gives us a chance for everybody to chime in and give a little bit of feedback on, on each other's projects because not everybody is critiquing every project. Um, it's, we still are like, I'm working on this over here and somebody else is working on that over there. So with these weekly status meetings, it gives us the opportunity for everybody to, see what each other is working on and, and even give feedback. I want to talk about kind of those early days of, of OCD. Cause I think for a lot of people who are listening, they might be solo entrepreneurs that are looking to kind of build a studio, maybe in the same way that you have, have a small, small team in an office somewhere. What were those early days? Like, was it just you and Jennifer kind of at the beginning? Yes, it was two people in the room. And so I, I talked a little bit about how, now we don't work over on the weekends and we don't work too late. I mean, we, we on, sometimes people are there until nine, 10 at, at night and that doesn't seem so crazy, but I mean, to many of your listeners that might seem insane, <laughs> but, but when we started OCD in 2010, probably for the first two years, we had to set an alarm just to make sure that we left the office at 10 o'clock because we were, we were working so late so often. Wow. And, um, and so, but that was, it was our company and we were working through everything, every project, every, every piece, every logo, every 
setting every bit of type ourselves. And we were also sending out every invoice. We were replying to every single email. We were writing every proposal and all of those things we were doing ourselves, two people in a room. And we were doing this while we weren't working with small projects. These were massive projects we were also working on. And that was that was intense, but it was also we loved it. It was it was something that we that's that's why we did what we were doing. So we would come in at the same thing. We would come in. Jennifer and I would come in at between nine and 10 o'clock. Um, she's a, more of an early bird than I am. So she would come in a little bit earlier, but we would work until the job got done. And depending on the deadlines, we would work later. And then if it was a big, big deadline, we might be there until whenever um, to get it done. So, so the early days were really, really intense. And then as things started to, as, as we got more comfortable running business, then we started to hire people, which then made things a little bit easier. But then you had to deal with the hiring of people and paying people and managing people, which, which introduces new challenges, mm-hmm. but it, it helps with workload. So that's, that's kind of how it is. But, but I remember, so I went to Virginia Commonwealth University and, and when we first started, that was during the, the time when VCU had this incredible run in March Madness. So during the basketball tournament, they had the, a really, really good run in March Madness where they went all the way to the final four. And so we were in the office and I remember watching the whole thing in the office by just streaming it. Uh, on the computer because we were we were in the office the whole time, like on the weekends, at night, every time. So I watched the whole thing <laughs> while we were working, and so I, I just remember that. And so I, like all my friends were were like trying to get together to have these watch nights and or or saying that they wanted to go down to wherever it was Houston or something like that to watch the Final Four because when when is VCU going to ever be in the final four again? And I was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Guys. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I'll be watching. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Things like that. And those, but those were sacrifices that I was, I needed to make for, to be, to be able to, to set up the company. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of want to zero in on that word sacrifice because I think it's, it's interesting. Like I, so before I started revision path, I had a, a small creative studio, like not as, I think it was probably smaller than what you are right now. Maybe at least when I first started out called lunch and I did that for nine years, I shut the studio down. Now I work for, for glitch, but it's funny because I'll tell people who work for themselves. Like the good thing about being an entrepreneur is that you can work half days, any 12 hours you want. So like, I know that whole thing about like working from early in the morning to late at night and the sacrifice part is interesting because I feel like the, the 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 information that entrepreneurs tend to be given is about this sort of like hustle hard, they sleep, we grind kind of thing where it's like you have to to put in the work, uh, which which I think you do. I think you do. I don't want to say that that's totally incorrect, but I think as your business grows, like you've said, you start to figure out the parts where you can hire people and kind of offset that load a little bit. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I always have had this mentality of of kind of leave it all in the field and 
And so I've kind of brought that into the business and Jennifer has too. And it's, it's just from kind of how we grew up and a little bit of that athletics and a sports mentality, but then you, you can't do it forever. And what I started off in my twenties, I mean, all of the companies that I've worked at have been brutal. And so I don't know if it was kind of learning bad habits, but they've been really great companies doing some exciting work for really big and exciting clients and companies, brands, but they've all been brutal. And where, I mean, working till three or four in the morning was a norm, Mm. but, or they've been kind of challenging in other ways. Um, whether it's internal politics and, and things like that. But it was my it was my 20s, so I figured I, I could do that. And it was it was a way for me to learn and to grow mm-hmm. and work with really good people. And that was always the the thing that I had heard and, and from from professors, from my professors growing up, they said, well, whatever you do, just go and work with really good people and learn from them. And so that's what I tried to do um, once I graduated from college. And uh, and I did that, but then it puts you in these situations where you're working in in some pretty intense scenarios. Yeah. But then, um, but I did that through my twenties, and I thought it was all about doing things really quickly and growing and and moving up really really fast. And then you kind of bring that into the starting of the business. And what I've learned once starting the business is that it's not about moving up really quickly. I, I believe it's much more a marathon than a sprint because I I don't want to do things quickly as a business. I want the business to be around for a long time and I want it to be successful for a very long time. And so what I need to do now is figure out what what to do to to be consistently excellent at what we do for a very long time for 10, 20, 30 years. So now we've been around for nine years. How do we continue what we're doing? And not just continue it. I want to be on an upward trajectory for another nine years and nine years after that. And so how do we do that? And and so what I need to do is, is figure out how I kind of take my foot off with the pedal a little bit as far as growing and, and scaling, but how do we make sure that we are putting in the, the best practices to, to deliver the, the absolute best work or to do, have the best customer service or to bring in the best talent or to, to create a, a culture that is reflective of the, the type of environment that we, we think is going to be most conducive to our values. And, uh, and so all of those things are super important to us. And, and those are all things that we learn by working at places that in some ways maybe didn't reflect those things. And so that's what we want in our company. And we want that over a long period of time. And we're continuing and we're always tweaking and we're always learning from the people that we're bringing in. Because as we get older, we're learning. There's things that um, younger people are interested in or want or need. And so, so those are all the the things that we're learning. Like our company is now our project that we're continuing to design and tweak Mm -hmm. and, and evolve. And it's, it's less about 
doing it with speed is doing it with craft and with care and and making sure that we are uh, building the best company that that we can be that's going to be able to do the best work that we can possibly do. Yeah. Back when I had my studio, I would tell people that the design and the projects were the easy part. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like that's the part I know how to do is the other stuff with like built like you said building a culture and making sure that, you know, the work that you're doing is continually elevating your profile that it's sustaining the studio or the business as it, you know, grows and grows. Like that's the difficult part. How did you I guess I guess I'm curious, like, how did you learn all that? Was it just kind of through trial and error or or what were the ways that you all have grown and changed OCD over the years? There's a lot of things that have changed it. We, we've always, we've always wanted to build a company that filled the gaps that we thought other companies didn't, didn't fill that we worked. So in, in places where we worked, they might have had something special, but they didn't have that right thing for us. And so we, we've always felt like in building OCD, we wanted to make a company that was deliberately different than others that are out there. And we wanted to be really specific about the type of work that we do. We build brand identity systems for for companies that have a lot of value uh, companies that uh, as we as, as we say it companies that have a lot to lose companies that have been around for a long time that have a lot of important fan base and and, and audience and, and customers we also want to work with companies that we believe in companies that have a strong belief system and that belief system is reflected in their in their actual makeup of the company uh, and the and the things that they're doing as a company, so those are things that are important to us. But then also in how the, we are treating and working as a company and how we're treating our employees. So, so those are things that are important to us. And and so we've we've always thought about that. We've we've founded OCD with that in mind. Then the other things are things that we have continued to evolve as as a company has to evolve um, the one thing that's inevitable is change and so we learn a lot as we grow and we we learn we've learned a lot from listening to our employees and staff we've we've made some trials and errors that we've had to we've had to learn from and we've had to uh, tweak our policies we've had we've continued to be more open and and open-minded in how we and how we are working with designers and how we're working with strategists, how we also kind of work with our clients. So they're, they're all things that we're, we're continuing to just figure out. And, and at the same time, we need to figure out how we keep the lights on. And so that's the other thing. So I agree that the design work is, is fun and it's challenging and working with the clients is, is, is also fun and challenging but all of these different pieces together is what makes it really exciting but it's it's it can be stressful um at times and it's it's figuring out all, all these different pieces and that's those are the things that you don't learn in class those are the things that you don't learn in in design school it, you can, you don't even really learn them in in business school and so like when when people are 
wanting to start a when people are wanting to start a, a business right out of school, I find that really tough because there's a lot of things that I had to do before even getting to starting the company that if I didn't do those things, I don't know how I would be in the place that I am now because a lot of the clients that I have are from relationships that I built before I even got to starting the company. And just the the patience that I have now or the mistakes that I've made in those places are things that I'm I learned from then are things that are helping me now. So there's just a lot that I was able to do even before starting OCD that's so so helpful in what I'm doing now at OCD. So it's just that there's a lot of factors but I'm very excited about where we are because I think there's a lot of freedom in starting a company and I can see why people want to start a company. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's just a lot of responsibility as you were just talking about. Yeah. And I think certainly when you're uh, like, if you start off as a solo entrepreneur, I think it's, it's very difficult at that point because you're really the only person that's responsible for everything. Of course, as you grow, then there are different challenges that get introduced, but I just remember like when I was starting out, I managed to kind of fall into a project which ended up yielding more work for years and years to come, which is great. But I literally like fell into it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I didn't do any marketing. Uh, somebody had like contacted me off meetup and I met up with them and it just kind of snowballed into something else. When you're looking for, I guess, client, well, if OCD looks for clients, I would imagine at this point clients probably come to y'all but what is the what's the intake process like are you all doing outward marketing or or how does that work well yeah well we've been lucky and as i mentioned a, a second ago we've been lucky where a lot of the work that we have gotten has has been from relationships that we've built and especially early on and then from there the work that we've gotten has been from work that we've done based on those relationships. And so it, it, it really snowballed from there. Uh, so we were able to uh, first build relationships, whether it's through organizations that we belonged on, uh, we, we, we were part of, like I was, uh, I was a member of AIGA New York. Jennifer was president of AIGA New York a couple years later. And uh, and so having that network was was really helpful because just designers in New York has as it's crazy you think that designers would be really competitive and and territorial but in New York uh, it, it's actually been quite the opposite and, and designers have been really supportive and and really helpful and so when when things pop up. Um, especially when we started our company designers were really um, helpful in sending things in our way. And, and we tried to do the same thing in our situation. And, um, and so that was really helpful, but then also in just other situations where, where there were people that I've worked with in the past that had moved on to different places that, that came calling um, because we had done work uh, previously and they, and we kind of built trust and they said, Hey, well, now that I'm doing this, would you consider working with me on this thing? And so that, that type of thing 
really taught me to <laughs> to never burn bridges. Sometimes, as much as you want to just say "fuck it," I'm out of here. Um, <laughs> I, I bit my tongue and didn't, and luckily I didn't because they would be people that would come back three, four, five years later saying, hey, I have this thing that I need help with, and I see that you have this company, and then all of a sudden we're working together, and I'm much more mature five years later, and so are they, and we're able to actually do some really excellent work together, and and then it would go from there. And and we're also in different, we're in much different places, much different places uh then so that happened uh, and then on top of that yes we we worked really hard on uh telling our the the stories of those projects at conferences and and on our website and in social media and at places like revision path we're talking about these stories and and how we got to be in the situation so all of it is um, marketing, whether it's directly or indirectly, and, um, and and it comes back in some ways. That's how we have marketed up to this point. We don't have a specific business development person. Um, that might be something that we need later on um, as we work with larger companies, as we look, work with bigger brands. We also start competing with bigger companies. So bigger companies do have more resources that they can put into winning those bigger clients. And, and so that might be something that we may need to invest in at some point, but at, at this point we've been, we've been winging it mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's been, that's been working so far. So we'll see how long we can continue like this. Okay. Speaking of stories, let's take it back. I know we've been focusing a lot on the current kind of things that you're doing right now with OCD, Let's take it all the way back to Hampton Roads, Virginia. Uh-oh. Tell me what it was like growing up there for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so my dad my dad taught at Hampton University. He taught there for, I think, 35 years or, or more. Wow. And I kind of grew up in the periphery of, of Hampton University. And I... Uh, but we lived we lived in the outskirts of Hampton, in kind of the suburbs of a in an area called Tad. And so both my parents were educators. My dad taught at Hampton. He taught health and physical education there, and uh, and then my mom was a, a principal in in the York County area. So she she was um, in that in that suburb kind of area. So I grew up amongst parents who were who were in in education and somehow I was the one who got out because my sister is also a she's an assistant principal and everybody around us are are in education but but what was great about growing up in Hampton is that it was a very diverse area and and also just being like going to Hampton every week because that's also where we went to church and being surrounded by like the there's an incredible art museum on campus at Hampton University, so I got a lot of access to the arts there. There was an artist named John Biggers who painted these murals in 
then, which was a new library that went up, I think that was in 1987, I may be wrong, but 1987 or sometime around then, 1987, 89, something like that, I could look it up. And I remember when he was there to paint these murals, and my dad was really obsessed with him and got to meet him and all of that. So my dad was a very sociable person and would just kind of talk to anybody. And so he kind of struck a bit of a friendship with this artist. And I remember he would, on days when I, like those those days when at school where like teacher work days or whatever they were, my dad would pick me up from school and uh, and and I would go and sit in with John Biggers while he was painting these massive canvases that were going to be installed in the in the library. I got like this incredible access to these artists. Now I'm trying to figure out the date of when these were because I feel like it might have been later than that because I feel like I was older. But I had this this incredible this incredible access to this artist and my dad was always taking me to these these different events. So when like Spike Lee would come down to, to speak to students, maybe it was around when he had done school days or something, he had done a presentation or he, he had spoken at, at one of the theaters. And, uh, and so I got to go see that. And, and Jacob Lawrence came and spoke at the museum and I got to go see that. And he, he signed up, it was a poster. It wasn't an actual print, but it was a Jacob Lawrence poster and he signed that. And so I got to go to all these different things while I was there. And I didn't really think much of it then, but now years later, living in Harlem, being able to go to the studio museum in Harlem and seeing the works of most of these artists in the museum, whether it's John Biggers or Jacob Lawrence or or people who've been inspired by by these artists, I realized how special that was. And uh, and so that was just one of the many things that I feel really lucky to have been a part of growing up in Hampton. Mm-hmm. And one of the other things in in Hampton that was was really great is <laughs> it's it's a big sports town. So it's a place where the you know sports was just if you weren't into sports you were kind of like an outcast and so i grew up where some of the biggest sports heroes are guys you've never even heard of because they 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 didn't actually make it um and then the ones that made it were they were huge but you know they weren't even the big ones but like five minutes down the road was Bethel High School, and that was where Allen Iverson went to school, and and, and Allen Iverson and Tony Rutland, and they just like ran the show. My that was that was my year. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were, they were in the same year as me, so a really exciting time. Um, but it was it was also kind of tense because not unlike today, where we have a lot of tension, racial tension, and things that were being stirred by the powers that be that was also happening at the same time when I was, when I was there in, in high school. I mean, uh, that was during the LA riots and Rodney King. But then a couple of years later, that's when Iverson got in trouble with the, the um, incident at the bowling alley, which I was literally there the night before. And so like all of that, all of that stuff was, was were things that we were right kind of right in the middle of. And, uh, and so you're kind of uh, seeing all of this and participating in it in, in some way or another, just from being a youth 
And so the art and the artistry and the design and the being a, a communicator are all things that became a vessel for, for me to be able to, to talk about these things and express these things. And so going to college, um, that was something that I, I learned that I was able to do. And so that was going to college, being able to talk about the things that were happening around me through the design, through, through art. It was, wasn't something that I was really, that I really know, knew that I could do when I was in high school. It wasn't really until college and even in grad school that I realized that I could use design to actually talk about things, to, to speak about what was going on in the world. And now you see it much more often. I mean, especially with the protests and, and with marching and Black Lives Matter and, and being able to kind of get out there in the front lines. But back then it was, it was something that you, you didn't see quite as often. And, uh, and so I was definitely inspired by designers that were out there in the world that were a lot fewer than, or at least it was it seemingly a lot fewer than that were able to use their art to be able to, to say something about what was going on in society. So even with all of that, is that kind of what prompted you then after you went to VCU to then move to New York? Which part? I don't know. There's a lot of parts that I'm thinking of. The the thing that uh, the reason I moved to New York was because I I'm kind of this overambitious person. And I I grew up in Virginia. You have to drive everywhere. So (laughs) it's kind of one of those areas where you have to hop in a car to go get bread. You have to hop in a car to go see a friend. You have to hop in a car to do everything. And so because of that, that's one of the reasons why I went to VCU because it's right in the heart of Richmond. And I, I really wanted to be in the city. And so I love being in, I love being in the city. I love being in downtown Richmond, just being able to get up and go down to Seven Eleven or to walk to class or to just, and, and be in a, in a building that in Richmond would be considered a skyscraper. And that's where I lived for, you know, for an apartment. Like I just love the kind of urban environment. I love the, I, I just love the, the kind of energy that it had. Uh, I love the character of it. And then, but, but then for me, always yearned for a little something bigger. And after graduating from college, most people either, either moved, stayed in Richmond, moved back home to Hampton or moved to DC. And, and so for me, the the obvious choice was to move to New York. Like I just wanted to be right in the heart of it. I loved New York. I I visited as part of the illustrators club when I was because I, I I was an illustrator also. Uh, so I, we came on a on a visit and visited studios for il- illustrator studios when I was in college, mm-hmm. and so I uh, I had done a trip here and I just loved it. I fell in love with. With the energy, I fell in love with the fashion. I fell in love with the street, and so I, um, so that's why I moved to New York. Uh, I got a job working in magazines, which is something I also loved. I loved editorial design, and I got a I got a job right out of college. They moved me up to New York, and I I haven't looked back since. Okay, yeah. The reason I was asking that is because I could tell as you were talking about home. Certainly, home is something that's very close to you, very important to you, just in terms of, you know, of course, your family being there, but even just all the culture 
in and around there. And I was just curious because like right after, it seems like right after you said you got this job and you moved to New York because you wanted to be kind of in the city. And I'm curious about that because usually when I talk to people that are coming from the South, I'm like, what is it that makes you go to New York? I like New York. I like visiting New York. I don't know if I could live in New York. That's just me. But no, it sounds like certainly making that move was what was going to be best for you, you know, in your career moving forward. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I kind of can't be, I love home and it's, I actually miss it a lot, but I, uh, I need the energy of the city. Yeah. Yeah. I feel yeah. you. I feel you. I'm, I'm from rural Alabama and yeah. it's just the same way. Like I think my mom would be most happiest if I just moved home and stayed there forever. <laughs> and it's like, no, in order for me to get out and do things, I need to kind of be in a city where things are happening. And so I, I get what you're saying there. And I mean, you went back home recently. You gave the uh, the graduation yeah. speech at your alma mater. I did. I did. They they asked me to, to come. I don't know how they found me. Uh, and I You was... don't know how they found you, really? <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> how was that? Oh, uh, it was it was incredible. It was one of the best experiences I've had. I was it was so much fun and I was able because it was incredible, it was so much fun. And I was able to have family come up and and see it and it was it was just great. It was only twelve minutes, which was fantastic because it was it was a I'm I'm so used to doing presentations where I'm presenting and there's a screen behind me and I have these prompts and I'm delivering in that way. Yeah. So this was a presentation where there was none of that. And so preparing a speech in that way was, was actually quite different, but it was after I got past that and, and actually wrote a speech that I had to deliver in that way. And I had to, you know, channel Obama. That was, that was <laughs> fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And the, the way that they did it, it was in, when I was there, it was called the Landmark Mark Theater, but now it's called the Altria Theater. So it was so nostalgic for me going there and, and doing the the uh, the VCU Arts commencement there. It was for the for the uh, the graduation the the arts program, uh, the arts department. So that that consists of all of the different uh, parts of the School of the Arts, mm-hmm. and uh, and there with with Dean Brixey who is actually a new dean of the School of the Arts, this incredible, really bright, big, big thinker. And we walk in and the theater is full. It's like over 4,000 people in this theater. Wow. And they're playing they're playing music. There's just this jazz band that is, is just thumping and it, the people are dancing. And we walk up on stage and they have – I guess it's called uh, interpretive dance. These dancers that are right in front of the in front of us, and it's just beautiful. And I'm looking at it, and I can't tell what's going on. But then I realize that they're literally spelling out VCU arts with their bodies. The dancers <laughs> are up on stage in front of me, and so they do that. And then after that's done, they get up, and Dean Brixey says a few words. And then I get up and I, I do my I do my talk and, uh, and but I really enjoyed it. And it was it was really important because coming out of uh, such a coming at a time where 
there's so many things happening politically. Being able to deliver this speech in Richmond, uh, where it's it, it was right across from a, a park called Monroe Park, where I'd walked through many, many times. I was doing this research for this talk, and I realized that the person who founded the School of the Arts, she was a woman. And that's not something that people talk a lot about. The School of the Arts was celebrating their 90th anniversary. And Teresa Pollock, there's a building that I did all of my classes in uh, when I was there at VCU. It's called the Pollock Building, and it's named after her, Teresa Pollock. She was the founder of the School of the Arts at VCU. And she was able to get her education because of two other women who were suffragettes. So they fought for women's right to vote right there in the park that was uh, right across from the theater that I was giving this speech in. Mm -hmm. So I was able to kind of tell their story at this at this commencement. And uh, and that was really the the start of the arts movement at VCU was was these three incredible women. And so 90 years ago, it was all founded by by these three women. And we're still fighting for some of the same rights. And that's how that's how important it is for us to be able to to use the arts in in a really powerful way. So so that was the basis of, of my talk and and to talk about the, the power of the arts and how important it is for for all of us to be able to use our arts um, and, and our creativity to be daring and to to go out there and do something uh, really impactful with power and and with good in mind. So uh, I, I just really, really enjoyed it. And I, I actually heard that I, I had a standing ovation at the end and they, one of the teachers who was showing me around, she said she's been going to these commencements for 20 years and no one's ever had a standing ovation. So I, I was like, okay, <laughs> bad. Nice. nice. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to make sure to link to that speech in the in the show notes. <laughs> okay. So I, I have a question I want to ask you, and I've only asked this of a handful of people on the show. Like I've interviewed hundreds of black designers from all over the world, et cetera. And sometimes I think, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, and sometimes it can feel like there is is an upper limit to the success sometimes that we can reach in this industry. And there's very few black designers that I feel like have reached that that upper echelon. Like I feel like Gail Anderson's there, Eddie Opara's there, you're there. Do you have any thoughts about that, about what it's like to be at the level where you're at right now in your career? Well, yeah, I, I, well, I appreciate being called, considered to be up there in, in, in that world. I think the work that that Eddie and, and Gail have done has been incredible. And, and Gail has just won the National Design Award, which is unbelievable. And it's and she was one of my teachers at uh, SVA in the MFA design program. So I definitely look up to to her and the work that she's done and continues to do. And it's really tough to to do this work on a daily basis, but we just have to get out there and, and put ourselves out there and, and lead and, and do the best that we can do. And what I find really exciting is being at the table and it's exciting, but it's also important and it's terrifying and it's frustrating. And 
I think it's all of those things because we fight so hard to get at the table. And then once we get at the table, we're the only ones at the table. And there's so many times when I've gotten to be at the table and I look around and I'm, yeah, I'm the only brother there. When I'm there, I, uh, I just do my thing and I just, I do the best work that I possibly can for the situation that I'm in. And the best part of that is they're looking to me for advice, coming to me for the work that I'm doing and I have to deliver. And so I'm crossing my T's and dotting my I's and I'm doing what I do. And I'm really excited about that because I'm able to be at a point where I am really comfortable doing what I'm doing and having people actually come to me for that. And it comes to life. And that's something that in a weird way, I guess I'm, it's a shame that that I have to say that. Like I, I never actually thought that that would be a thing. I never thought that that's something that people would do, like come to me to, for, for something like that. But it's true. And when you're in that situation, you look around and you're like, wow, this is actually happening. But I'm also doing that because I want that to be able to happen for so many other people. And I know that, you know, I have to I have to do the best I can because I want to make it easier for other people to be able to do that. And I want to I have to make sure that I am professional. I have to make sure that I'm showing up on time. If not on time, I'm, I'm showing up earlier than they asked me to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to make sure that when they ask me to do the work, I'm doing a little bit more than they asked me to do. I'm over delivering. I'm pushing them to do something I'm pushing them and I'm pushing them and I'm pushing them to do the absolute best work that they can possibly do. Because when it actually comes to life, I want it to be incredible because I think it's really important for the work that we do to be at its best because I think it affects more than just me. And I have a feeling that those aren't just things that I feel. I think those may be similar points of views that that others in my situation have have probably have had to in order to do the type of work at the level that they have been doing it at. So a certain way of kind of gritting and grinding that we've had to do to just be able to get to this point. And the, the reality is, is just it's hard, man. It's it's real. Like it's it's not easy. It's like it's getting up in the morning and it's not going home until the work is done. It's managing a team. It's dealing with a lot of personalities. It's dealing with a lot of deadlines and clients that have also different personalities and, and, and different deadlines and, and different budgets and, and different needs. And, and it's real and it's not for the faint of heart, but I wouldn't want to be doing any other thing. And that's what's really exciting about it. There's a freedom to having my own business. And that's what I'm doing because I'm, I'm doing what I love my way every day. And I highly encourage others to do it. Now, earlier you mentioned your parents both being educators. You mentioned your sister being an educator. But you're an educator, too. You teach or you taught or I guess are you still teaching at SVA? Yeah. So I teach in the graduate program at SVA. OK. From yep. your perspective as a design educator, what do you feel is missing from design curriculum that you'd like to see added? I thought a lot about that. And there's there's a few things that I, I find that are missing. But one that really stands out is design history. So 
there's a few places that teach design history and you can see it come through in the design work. And that's something that I had when I, when I went to college and I, I find that it was really, really helpful, especially now I rely on it a lot in my, in my practice. So understanding who's come before me and how that can help me move forward in the work that I'm doing. So knowing designers and the challenges that they've had, knowing the work that they've done, knowing I focus on brand identity development. So knowing corporate identity, knowing the the heroes and the, the legends in corporate identity and the work that they've done and the and who they've done it for before is something that I find really important. But I don't think it's taught enough, especially at a lot of the programs that uh, have been popping up across the country. But then even more specifically, I find to be really missing the I find that the in the design history, once you then start to dive into it uh, even even more deeply, is the the diversity in the the history itself. So mm. in the design history, where are the blacks and the 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 latinos and and the the different perspectives in the uh, in the history of graphic design? And, and that's what I find missing. And even with my colleagues, I was recently in a meeting where we were talking about how we could have different diverse representations in a, in a design museum here in the city. And that was coming up as how we are missing a certain level of representation from just different parts, different decades from the, from the 80s and the 70s and the, and the, and the 60s and the 50s. And then some of the same culprits keep coming up, and which is really good. So you think about Emory Douglas from the the Black Panthers, or you you think about some others. You think about Jet and Ebony and the and the Johnson Publications, uh, which is fantastic. But then, do you know the designers behind them? No, and that's something that I'm curious about as uh, as my career continues to grow and as I continue to do research for different projects, that's something that I'm, I'm really, really curious about, especially as I'm working with the Studio Museum in Harlem or I'm working with the Schomburg uh, Center for, for Research in Black Culture. Um, I find that there's a, a big gap in uh, understanding who made uh, materials, even for these institutions. I think there's, there's already a, a gap in the teaching of design history just overall uh, at, at a lot of universities and colleges uh, nationally. Uh, so that's, that's something that I think is, is missing and I can see it in, in the designers that I'm interviewing, uh, no matter who they are and, and what background they are, and what, what sex or race they are. And uh, their, their uh, design heroes are typically their, my contemporaries and that's really as far back as they go. But then uh, when you start to get into a more diverse backgrounds, it, it gets even even thinner. And that's really the fault of, 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 of ours. So I think the work that you're doing, Maurice, is, is super, super important because it's starting to lay the groundwork for having a much richer canon of, of, of people to be able to call from for knowing the, the work that's out there and, and being able to, to see 
all the creativity that's that's out there in the world and being able to celebrate that. So I think that's super important and, and we need a lot more of that. So so I'm really excited about the work that you're doing. And I think that there's there needs to be a lot more of that celebrated in the in the uh, academic world. Well, thank you. I appreciate hearing that. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what sort of work do you want to be doing? Well, it's a good question. We've continued to focus on identity systems, and that's that's definitely where we're going to continue our focus. But in the next five years, we may uh, broaden where our how we're approaching identity uh, development, uh, and what that means is we are continuing to to, to do identity systems, but as we develop it, identity systems, companies have the, the identity system needs to take life in different ways within that company. So we have been continuing to develop identity systems that need to perform better across digital applications or um, identity systems that need to be even more grounded in, in the strategy and the business strategy of the company. So in the next five years, I could see us continuing to build out an even broader digital component of our company so that we're able to have an even more grounded sense of, of the digital aspects of things for the partners and, and the companies that we're working with. So it's, it's, we, we're not just focusing on the identity system itself, but we're also thinking about uh, the flexibility of an identity system across digital applications. Uh, and then also we want to broaden our or deepen our strategic framework within those companies. So we want to be able to have a richer sense of um, brand strategy for, for companies. So that's something that we want to do. And, uh, and then the last, I think overall we will probably grow a good amount to, to be able to do that. And, and we're all doing that to be able to just take on more of the type of work that we want to be doing for the clients that we want to be doing it with. And who knows where we'll be as a country in five years, hopefully we'll be in a, in a better place with, um, you know, in a much more, just a much, much nicer place than we're in right now, but, Mm -hmm. but you never know. So we need to plan for those types of things as well. And, uh, and then we, we always think about the types of companies that we want to be working with. So we're continuing to, to keep those types of things in mind because we're, we, that, that also evolves as we continue to, as we continue to grow and as the world continues to evolve. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Well, our website is originalchampionsofdesign.com. And you can also find out a little bit of what we do on Instagram at OCD Agency or Twitter at OCD Agency. And we're also on Facebook, Original Champions of Design. Where else? You can find us on Revision Path. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, and then otherwise, we'll, I'm, I'm on the board of the Type Directors Club. So, tdc.org, I'm on the board of the Type Directors Club. And so, 
definitely very active there and would love for uh, the listeners to be involved in, in TDC. We'd love to see more color in, in type and type design and, and also being more involved in, in, in TDC would be would be great because I think that there's definitely a lack of diversity in in type and type design and typography in general. And uh, and where would it be if we can't if we can't use type to be able to spread the word? Uh, and then I will be I will be uh, well we want this podcast, we want this revision path to live on and on and on, but I will be participating in the AIJ National Conference this coming April, April 2019. So I will be there if anybody wants to drop drop in. It's in Pasadena, California, so it doesn't get much sunnier than that. <laughs> All right. That sounds like a good place to to end things off here. Well, Bobby Martin, I want to thank you so much for for coming on the show. Thank you for, I mean, I wanted to sort of share the story of where you came from to get where you are now, because, and I've mentioned this before in other episodes, I feel like sometimes when designers of a certain caliber, whenever they're interviewed, the focus tends to just be on where they're at right now and not necessarily the journey that they've taken to kind of get to where they are. So I'm glad to share that. And I'm also glad that you were able to talk about what it's like to run the business and that you were really kind of open and honest and transparent about it. I mean, I think sometimes when you hear folks talk about business, it's all good, 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 but also it's, it's a roller coaster. You know, it can be one way or another, but I think certainly the work that you're doing through OCD, the brand systems that you all have been able to build that millions of people have been able to see. Certainly I think it's a reflection of your hard work and your creativity. So I'm glad that we're able to, to showcase that here on Revision Path. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. This is great. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Bobby Martin and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Bobby and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Did you know that people spend over 3 billion minutes daily on Facebook? With an audience of over 2 billion users, that's pretty impressive. You know, people use Facebook to share and connect with the people they care about, and their experience is the core of the Facebook design team. Sound interesting? Then learn more about Facebook design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is the friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. If you're new to Glitch, then just pop on over to the homepage and explore some of the featured projects or categories to try it out. It's like a familiar app store, but almost everything is created by regular people like you. I'm talking people from students just learning how to code to some of the best programmers at the biggest tech companies. They're all using Glitch. So visit Glitch.com and create something awesome today. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well, including us. You know, MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. 
send better email. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Mandre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I know it's the holiday season, and let me tell you, one of the best ways, the best ways that you can show your support for Revision Path is to leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two. It helps more people learn about the show, not just here in the U.S., but internationally. It helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings for design podcasts, and I'll even read your review right here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.